0: We have been in a series uh, called Impossible, in which we have been looking at our church mission statement. We're changed, known, and sent by God into this world. And the reality is this, right? Each of those things, much less all of them together, are impossible things. People have been trying to change themselves for millennia. And while we can get a little bit of the way outwardly, our heart doesn't really change. And we've been fighting amongst each other to try to know each other or beat each other down also for millennia. But we can't bind ourselves together by something strong enough to overcome the issues in this world. But Jesus offers those things because of his great, nigh impossible love for us as well. And because of this, each and every week, the the answer, the, the response, the application, if you will, is one of surrender. I mean, you think about it. If all of these things really are impossible, then there's really nothing that we can do primarily except offer ourselves to God to say, it is impossible, and yet you love me anyway. It is impossible, but you want me to be a part of what you're doing. You want me to be a part of your family, of your people. And so each and every week we've talked about what it means to surrender to this God in this situation of impossibility. This morning, I would like us to hear from one of our own members who talks about his own story of surrender. And then afterwards, Becky's going to come and read God's word for us.
1: My name is Joshua Seawicky. I'm married to Sharon, and we have three boys, and we love being members of Intown town Community Church. When I think about surrender, it's hard for me to just pinpoint one experience. Um, it's definitely been a journey for me, I kind of liken it to a journey into the mountains. Um, if you grow up in Georgia and you go to uh, North Georgia, you see mountains and you come home and think, okay, I know what a mountain is. But then one day you get to go to Switzerland, you see the Swiss Alps and you realize, whoa, I didn't know what a mountain was. And I think in a similar way, there was a time in my life where I thought, okay, I know, I know surrender, I got it, I did it. And then you keep living and you keep walking with the Lord and you realize, whoa, surrender so much more. Um, When I was young, I would have said surrender is giving God control of my salvation. You know, I recognized that I was a sinner and that in order to have fellowship with God, I I needed help and Jesus could provide that help. And so I gave him that control. Um, After that, I probably would have um, equated surrender with, you know, the old, uh, phrase, what would Jesus do? Um, So I spent much of my um, school years trying to do that. What would Jesus do? And I would have said that was an example of surrender. And when I got to college, though, I realized that mm, that really wasn't an example of surrender. Um, I began to realize that it was still my attempt to control. I was trying to control God's love for me. I made decisions based on my desire to try to control his love and get his approval. And now he's telling me I don't have to do that. So how do I live? Um, I ended up on the shore of a lake on a retreat, severely depressed. And um, I wasn't questioning my faith, but I just really didn't know how to live. I didn't know how to make decisions. And we were instructed to go spend time in devotions. And because of a Bible class, I knew that Psalm 119 was the longest psalm. And so I thought, I'll just read Psalm 119 because can. it'll take me the whole time. And it'll give me something to do. I'll fulfill the requirement and be done. And I got to Psalm 119, 175. It says, let me live that I may praise you and may your law sustain me. And I thought, oh my goodness, God, I've been pleading with you to tell me how to live. And you just, <laughs> you just gave it to me in this song. And from that moment forward, that began to characterize my concept of surrender. I began to learn and realize that surrender was not just a ticket to heaven. Surrender was all of me. It was everything associated with my existence, placing that at his feet and giving him complete control even if i didn't understand Um, so one thing i've learned about surrender it's not a one-time thing it's moment by moment day by day it's a continual process it gets easier i think as we do it um but it has it's a continual process
2: The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Holy God, you are the God of the impossible. You're the God of power and might. You're the God of this place. And we ask, Lord God, that you would draw our hearts to a place of quiet and of focus And a deed of surrender, even in just this moment, that you might teach us and that we might hear what your spirit is saying. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, again, good morning. What you just heard is a weird passage in scripture. Let me explain. A weird passage in scripture because it's one of the few books of the Bible that is linked to another book, right? When we think of the Bible, we think of a book that we bought off of a shelf or that we downloaded or something like that. But in reality, the Bible is 66 different texts written in at least three languages over 4,000 years of time by over 40 people. And so it's not a singular unit at all. However, we just read in my first book, O Theophilus. And the Apostle Luke, one of the early followers of Jesus, a meticulous doctor and writer and lover of stories, spent a lot of time writing down the history of early Christianity and of Jesus. And he writes a two volume letter. Instead of one book, we have two. And so we have the gospel of Luke, and then we also have the book of Acts, the story of Jesus, and then also the story of the early church. And the passage that you just read really serves as the hinge point between those two things. The disciples have indeed lived really an impossible life, if you will. They all grew up in Judaism They lived doing various trades, believing various things. And somehow, this somewhat backwoods young rabbi named Jesus Bar Joseph, Jesus, son of Joseph, from Nazareth, originally from Bethlehem, calls to them and says, follow me. And over the next three years... Not only do they see him doing absolutely impossible things, but they start to realize that he's not simply a rabbi at all. And very quickly, they start moving up the chain, if you will, from rabbi to prophet called of God to Messiah to God himself. Impossible. God come to earth. And then he dies, right? Impossible. We were wrong. God died. God doesn't die. And then he comes back to life. Again, amazing. With power. Not even when he would bring others to life like Jesus did, but he literally beats death himself. And he appears to them. And as we read, he teaches them, and they realize the impossibility has become possible. And then finally here in this passage, he promises to them something else incredibly impossible, that they are going to go out, and they are going to go on a great mission. And because of them, all the earth, will come to know Jesus. You can almost think about it as kind of rings or stops along the way. Judea, and like, like going to, to Macon right from Atlanta. And then Samaria, going all the way down to Thomasville or up into Tennessee or something like that. And then we take a gigantic jump to the ends of the earth. And for a bunch of young men who, let's be honest, had probably not traveled more than about a hundred miles away from their homes in their entire lives, to be told, you will go to the ends of the earth was an incredible, almost impossible thing. But God said, you will be sent with power. Now, this is an example of something we've talked about before um, the indicative imperative rhythm of Scripture. And it's this as much as we often read the Bible classically as a book of imperatives, a book that tells us what to do, a book that tells us how to live, the reality is that Scripture does not present us with things to do without telling us first what is true about God and about us. So in the same way, Jesus does not come to these people and say, all right, now I've done my part, now it's your job. Here's the football, here's the baton, go. He says, I will be with you always. And I will also send you someone else, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And he will give you power to be able to accomplish that which I call you to do. Jesus did not say that the climactic moment of history was only coming to know him, only his death and resurrection. There's more to follow. I think a lot of us can sit in this place of purposelessness, following our journey with Jesus. We come to know him. We feel his change in our lives. We come into a covenant community. There's that sense of changed and known. And, you know, we have this idea of sent a little bit in the back of our minds, but the reality is, is we've already passed the golden years. We've already passed the time where God's done big things in our lives. And now we're just sort of trying to putter out and crash into home plate somewhat in one piece. At least that's how the Christian life can live, can can seem. But this is a misnomer. This passage was not simply written to the original disciples. The disciples do not actually completely make it to the ends of the earth the farthest individual who journeyed, Thomas, history shows, made it all the way to India before he was martyred for his faith. But still, nobody made it here to North America. Nobody made it to the farthest southern tips of Africa or all the way north into Europe and northern Asia. Nobody made it to most of the islands beyond the Mediterranean. This was also a purpose for all of us, for the whole people of God, to go into all the world and to bring the glory of God everywhere with us. I think this idea of purpose, this this grand narrative, if you will, is something that we need to be talking about more. Research shows uh, my generation and those younger than myself, as I rapidly feel like I am aging, um, often wrestle with this idea of purpose. And if you're a part of those generations, you might sympathize. If you're older than that and you don't sympathize, you may struggle with some of your younger employees or relatives or children. And this sense that they want to be a part of something that matters. They want to work According to their passion, they want to be more and do more. And to some extent, this is the most annoying thing in the world. <laughs> and in other respects, it makes a lot of sense, right? If you were a part of a group of people who grew up watching their parents and their friends' parents fight and work and grind it out, and then get to a place of economic and social standing, and realize that all of that grinding and all of that working did not somehow equate to community or to mental health or to marital health or any of these things, you would, you would kind of not necessarily want to follow in their footsteps either. Now, am I saying there is some separate purpose of God rather than us going into our jobs going into our families, going into this world. No, I'm not. But I believe that there is great value in the gospel, in us realizing that, as Joshua already said, surrender, purpose, work. David preached about this in the summer, that that everything we do is a part of God's mission in this world. Everything we are called to involves faithful living, declaring his glory, telling our neighbors, showing his love, and this rather than being a separate purpose, it actually infuses our regular lives with incredible purpose and meaning. We can wake up in the morning believing that God actually wants something in us and for us and he has empowered us to do just that. One of the stranger verses in the Bible is John 14, chapter, uh, verse 12. Jesus says this to his disciples on the night before he dies as a part of what we call the upper room or last supper discourse. He says this, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What? We would do more than Jesus? It sounds strange. kind of almost sounds blasphemous, to be honest with you. But I've been reading about this guy lately. He intrigues me. His name, if you don't know or recognize the picture, was George Washington Carver. Carver was a slave. He didn't know when he was born, but he was born towards the end of the Civil War. Uh, grew up as a young man, and um, the family that he grew up with, he did not uh, know or remember his parents. They were taken from him, but they invested in his education, and he found that he had an acumen for science and math. He loved it. And so he decided to become a doctor, a scientist, and he becomes a scientist. He works for a number of years in um, at the Tuskegee Institute Uh, As being an African American man, he wasn't allowed to work most other places. But he also was a great lover of Jesus. And he would regularly walk in the forest by the Institute and pray. He said he had a nervous habit. Like he just, when he was in his lab, he could focus. But somehow, if he's in his lab, he can focus on data. But it was hard for him to sit and connect with Jesus. So he would go on these walks and. One day he recounts in his biography that, that he went on a walk and, and was just overcome by the, the wonder of God. And because he was overcome by the wonder of God, he, he prayed, just like Moses in the Old Testament prayed, Lord, would you show me just everything about your world? I love you so much. I love your world so much. And immediately he says he was overcome with the, the bigness of God and the glory of God. And, um, just in a sense of like, no, he cannot know everything. And he says over uh, the course of time, as he began to pray this more and more on his walks, he started in some ways praying smaller, not in a bad way, smaller, but just realizing, you know, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? At some point, he even says he almost gets kind of frustrated. So he begins just to pray about one of the projects he was working on in that moment, which some of you might know was peanuts. And he prays that God would somehow show him just what he did with a peanut. Some of you might know that Carver revolutionized the world of permaculture. Because of this follower of Jesus' work, millions of people have been fed. Jesus said, I will, you will do greater things than I did. Sometimes our potential for purpose is so beyond what we think or can even imagine. We indeed have been sent with impossible power. you probably don't recognize this lanky cue ball of a kid. But if you put a beard on him and a lot of weight and a lot of sleepless nights, you might see a 19-year-old youth pastor at his first church sitting in literally inside the floor of a house that I had taken my first youth group on a mission trip to help rebuild. That boy loved Jesus. And he was overcome, overwhelmed with a sense. I was overcome, overwhelmed with a sense of purpose and of excitement and of movement. I believed that God was going to use me to bless the world and so many of my friends we there's such a fire that sometimes comes right from high school and college and, and and to see that sense of of surrender as Josh talked about just channeled was was a wonderful time in my life at the same time I still pause and sometimes cry thinking about the graveyard of faith that that accompanies memories like this for me. The number of friends I had that burned out. Their faith, their momentum, their purpose, their sense of calling and power died very, very quickly. For them and for me and for others, Often, it was not being sent with impossible power, but it felt like being sent on an impossible task. Look, I don't know about you. I, I'll be honest. I actually wrestled with, um, struggled with Jimmy, um, naming this whole series Impossible. And it wasn't, it wasn't because of him, totally support him, love him. But uh, for me, growing up, that concept of impossible really, I think riled up in me a lot of of weird thoughts about like prosperity gospel, which if you're not aware is a movement, a heresy that sadly infected lots of places in the world where people will say, you know, they're, they're naming it and claiming it. They're believing that if God, you know, if they're faithful, God will prosper them. If they give such and such money, God will give them back. And Uh, They've been exploited all over the world. I didn't grow up in a prosperity gospel world, but subtly, I kind of did. I grew up with feelings that if I was faithful, use language that we've been talking about in this series, if I surrendered enough that would, by default, equal something. If I surrendered my finances, I'd be okay financially. If I surrendered my purity to the Lord before marriage, I would have a great marriage or a great sex life. If I surrendered eventually becoming a, you know, a parent and having children and I raised those children in the, the knowledge of the Lord, they would become believers and followers of Jesus Sometimes that stuff is true, right? It's proverbial. It is a wise thing. Scripture tells us giving our money to the Lord, we receive blessing as a result of that. Scripture tells us and statistics honestly tell us if we raise our kids in our faith, they're more likely to follow. If we um, don't have sex before marriage, we're we're not going to import a lot of baggage into our later relationship. But Scripture is also... Just as filled with accounts, especially in the Psalms, which, by the way, that's our next sermon series, so we're going to kind of go deeper in this idea. But Scripture's filled with these accounts that, that the psalmist cries out and says, God, why are the unrighteous prospering and the righteous are suffering? God, why am I, when, it, when it's King David especially, why am I your king, your anointed, the one who's supposed to represent you before your people? Why am I on the run and someone else has taken over? Why am, is your people a laughingstock before the nation? some of the prophets say? I wonder if you might be or have been in a place like that, a place that says, "I thought I surrendered enough." I thought I did it, I thought I listened, I thought I gave what I had to God. I raised my kids here in town, maybe, and not all of them or any of them, maybe following Jesus. I followed all the things my marriage is not great I gave my money and then the market dropped out Sometimes the purposes that God call us God calls us to are not the things we thought and instead of being exciting and motivating with you know epic Lord of the Rings-esque music behind it. Instead, our life just seems to be one minor chord after another as we wrestle to get through one more day. I'd like to speak to you this morning and hopefully give you some encouragement, give myself some encouragement, that as you've heard already scripture is not foreign with respect to that situation. In fact, it's normal. God's purposes are not always our own. God's ideas of what he is doing in the world do not always include our wisdom in understanding them. This does not make God evil. It does not make him a puppet master who just is manipulating us. It just means we live in a broken world. And it's why the psalmist, the psalmists, often come to God, the prophets often come to God with almost anger, frustration, disappointment, sadness, longing, need, exhaustion, saying, where are you, God? What is going on? Now, what I love is there, there's often a pattern, pattern in Psalms where what you'll see is the, the writer go through all of this and then say at the end, but I will praise the Lord in the land of the living. I will acknowledge my God. Now, I used to think that was a cop-out. I used to think that was a Sunday school answer that somehow said, like, I can be 98% mad at God but then I have to insert this little thing in here so that God will actually like my prayer. That's not what's going on. The psalmists use the psalms to shape us. And part of that shaping involves an anger, a frustration, an exhaustion that is kind of with an anchor that nonetheless acknowledges who God is and what he has done and waits on him. It's not a place Of rebelling against God, but actually a place of surrender. Saying, I can surrender my whole self honestly as I'm actually honest and bare before the Lord. I don't condone screaming at God or cussing Him out, but to be honest with you, sometimes when people come to me and they say they feel like doing that or they have done that, there's a part of me that says, okay, that's kind of good. Not because of the sin, but because. To be honest, when there's a student, when a student ignores God, that's actually when I get the most worried. Right? When apathy kicks in, when lethargy kicks in, when we just don't care anymore, that's when you know a marriage is really on its rocks. There's a sense in which when we scream out to the Lord, when we ask, Why, God, what have I done wrong? Why is it like this? that the Lord meets us where we're at. We're still talking to him. We might not like what he is doing, but we're engaged. And time and time again in scripture, from Job to David to Jeremiah, God responds. He continues to engage with his people because he loves us so much. So I want us, as we think about slowly wrapping this idea of impossibility up, Jimmy will come back next week and put a nice cap on it for us, but I want us to consider God's expectations. I don't want you to sense that maybe you heard God wrong if you find yourself in that place of struggle. I don't. But what I do want you to see is the, the beauty of what God actually could be calling you to instead of only feeling the loss of what you thought he did. Remember Acts chapter one, what what we started with, this bookend of a passage. Jesus gathering his disciples together, he gives a rousing speech that involves power and glory And then he literally ascends into heaven with angels, all right? Now, what the text doesn't uh, highlight for us, because just the Bible's not as concerned with time, is they they do spend a good amount of time, um, 40 or 50 days or so, sitting in limbo after this, not really knowing what's going to happen. But as many of you know, in Acts chapter 2, suddenly... Fire comes down. The Holy Spirit blows the top off of Jerusalem. The church grows a hundredfold overnight, and we are off to the races. Luke's gospel, which begins in miracles, ends in miracle, the book of Acts, beginning in power, and this is how it ends. Acts 28, 30, and 31. He is Paul, at some point about the middle of the book of Acts, we kind of, kind of get a zoom in on this one apostle named Paul. Luke travels with him and writes his story. Paul lived there, Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is actually a a very nice way of putting this. What it actually looks like is that Paul is on house arrest. He has a centurion stationed inside his house with him and is possibly chained to the wall of his house. He still has to pay for the house he is on house arrest in. And so he is likely going broke And for two whole years, while he is indeed welcoming all who came to him, he's not going out and doing the thing that he thought God was calling him to do. He's not planting any churches in these two years. He's not going on mission. He's not gathering money. He's not doing the Apostle Paul thing that we think about. He is literally sitting on his chair, hoping and praying that people will come remember him and visit him and that maybe he can still do some ministry there it is not the climactic narrative end of the history of the church in some ways it's normal life i had a good friend have a conversation with me a couple of weeks ago and it is just eaten at me after he said steve he's a little bit older than i am he said he said in all honesty i think i'm at this place in life where Man, if I die and you know I'm still married to my wife and my kids are still talking to me and maybe are thinking about Jesus, I will have considered to have won. I thought about that, and the reality actually is, man, that's actually a pretty amazing purpose. Because marriage is hard, parenting is hard. These things we do in our day-to-day lives actually have incredible significance in the kingdom of God. Paul was not on a break from doing God's purposes. He may have been in a different season. Our lives changed, but he was not on break. I want you to know as we talk about all of this momentum here at InTown, as we talk about being changed by God and us knowing one another and being sent out into this world and into this community, that is not something that is for the other people that have not failed at the kingdom of God. That is not something for the new people or the excited people or the whatever people. It is for you. Because you have been filled with the Holy Spirit and you are a part of God's purpose for this community and this world. It will not necessarily look like Paul or George Washington Carver or anybody else. But we have eternal significance in God's story. Our surrender, as Josh said in that video, is one of every day. It is not a hope that maybe God will use us if we can work on ourselves enough. It is a knowledge that God is using us and will continue to use us. And because of that, and because at any point in time we can trip and say, this is my show, and this is my thing, and I'm doing okay, that is where our daily surrender comes from. That is where the impossibility of being sent lies, not only in the power that fills us, but in the day-to-day-to-day use of us by God, for things that are so far beyond our understanding that I believe we will get to glory one day. I don't even believe we're going to be able to see the whole picture. I just think very, very slowly, it's going to be like the coolest family reunion in the world where we just sit around and swap stories. And over time, the six degrees of separation with Kevin Bacon become this this sense of, wait, what? God did, huh? And we start to slowly see over the remainder of forever just how important every single second of our life was to God and how incredible He is. Let's pray. Jesus, would you inspire those of us who need to be inspired? this morning. You have a purpose for us. Would you please comfort those of us, God, who need to be reminded that that purpose is far bigger than we could ever understand? Would you remind us of your love for us? You use the things you love, and you love us so much. pray this in your name. Amen.